And so I'm preaching from a section of scripture that is like a really well-known story, kind of, kind of, because it's a story that is uh, found in Matthew, and we kind of know it as the, the parable of the talents. And then in the gospel of Luke, there is a similar story called the parable of the 10 minutes. But but I like the Luke one because it's way, way more complicated. And I like Luke. Uh, but the Luke one is like way more weird. Uh, and I say that because I prepared an entire message on this. And I've preached on this like six, seven years ago. And I thought, great, I've got some notes to start with. And I prepared the whole thing. And it was like 10 o'clock last night. And it just didn't sit right with me. Yeah, it wasn't a nice feeling. I was like, I have this message. I've preached this message before. And all the people that I like preach this message a certain way. You know, like Greg Boyd preaches a certain way and N.T. Wright preaches it a certain way. And so I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm good. I'm all sorted. And then I was just like, no, nah, this, isn't, this isn't it. So I dug a little bit deeper. Um, so what you're going to hear today is a wildly different interpretation of this scripture. Now, it's not just completely just Jeff going off on a heretical tangent. Um, there are church fathers like Irenaeus and Origen and Clement and Eusebius and a whole bunch of others that have a different view of this that is not exactly what I'm going to share today. But there is a whole school of academic and scholarly people who have said, we have got this wrong. And, and the way that they um, have reframed it makes so much more sense to me. Um, so I'm going to humbly offer this different interpretation. Uh, if you don't like it, that's great. But I, I would suggest that maybe, and I'll try to make a case for it, maybe this, this is the, the way that we should be reading this. So I'm going to start by just by reading the parable. This is from Luke 19, verse 11 to 27. It says, while they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself an appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minutes. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. And the first one came and said, Sir, your minna has earned 10 more. Oh, well done, my good servant, my master. His master replied, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter. Take charge of 10 cities. And the second came and said, Sir, your minna has earned five more. And his master answered, Take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your minna. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. And his master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew did you, that I am a hard man, taking what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? And then he said to those standing by, take his minna away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. 
And sir, they said, he already has 10. And he replied, I tell you that everyone who has more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. This, this is, even before we add some complexity to it, a pretty confusing parable. But I want to make it clear that we need to separate our perception of this parable from the parable in Matthew 25 about the talents. Uh, now, these are, these are two different stories that have some very similar elements, but it's really important that we separate them because the context is really different of those two stories. And also, we have to remember, this is a, a recording of Jesus' words from a particular perspective. So the author of Matthew and the author of Luke have different agendas in when they're writing these messages. And I would say that the author of Matthew... Uh, his agenda was trying to, because Jesus had been asked a question, so his agenda was trying to answer the question basically of how do we remain faithful? How do we remain wise and vigilant until the master returns at the end of the age? That's the question Matthew's trying to answer. So he's answering an eschological, like an end of end times question. So he tells a story that is an allegory of the end times. In the parable of the talents, in the preceding verses before the parable, we have the destruction of the temple where Jesus prophesies about it. We have the signs of the ends of the times. We have the proclamation that no one will know the day nor the hour. These are in verse uh, chapter 24. And then we have four short parables. A parable of a wicked slave. The parable of the ten virgins. They're the ones who are waiting for the, um, for the bridegroom to come. And it's a question of how do they wait and have they wisely prepared. And then we have the parable of the talents. And then we have the parable of the sheep and the goats. So you can see all of these parables are about the end and about the coming of the new age and about judgment. The parable of the talents, um, the workers are commended or rebuked on how diligent they are in the master's absence. But that's not the context that we find in Luke. But too often this verse has been interpreted, basically like even when you look at like... Um, like in some more it's the, like traditional churches, they have like a, a plan where they go through certain things and every year or over a several year period, they preach through all sorts of um, bits of the Bible. This particular parable is often left out because it's assumed that they've already kind of covered it basically when they went through it in Matthew. So it's not a parable that gets kind of as much attention. So let's look at the context of this parable in the Gospel of Luke. So we've, we've read through the parable. That was in, what was it, chapter 19. So in chapter 17, it tells us that Jesus is traveling along the border of Samaria and Galilee, kind of down um, uh, the, the, um, the River Jordan towards Jerusalem. And then in chapter 18, Jesus tells a parable about a repentant tax collector and a self-righteous Pharisee. And in this particular story, the, the audience assumes that we call it a self-righteous Pharisee, but in their world, the Pharisee was the righteous good guy and the tax collector was the, the awful treasonous bad guy. And Jesus turns it up on its head and the, the, um, the tax collector is repentant and the tax collector uh, is, is uplifted in the parable and the Pharisee is, is given the kind of role of the bad guy. Then we find Jesus meeting with the rich young ruler. 
So it's another parable about, uh, another, sorry, story about money. And in this story, the rich young ruler comes and he is a righteous man. He has upheld all of the Ten Commandments and he wants to know what he must do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus says, you need to sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And he goes away sad. And when Jesus is discussing this with his disciples, he says, it's really hard. In fact, it's impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So again, we have this story about money. And then as chapter 19 opens, Jesus is, uh, so he's been on his way down, his final trip to to Jerusalem uh, before he is crucified. And he enters into Jericho. And as he enters into Jericho, he meets with Zacchaeus, the tax collector. And he goes to Zacchaeus' house. And after they have their conversation, uh, Zacchaeus says this. He says, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus replies to Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. So that's the context. Jesus is literally just finishing up with Zacchaeus and either they're still sitting there or Jesus has now kind of, he's, he's had his time in, in Jericho and he's saying, well, let's head off. So that's the context. It's, whatever's happened, it's just after this. It's, it literally says, while they were listening. Then Jesus t- shares this parable of the 10 minus. These are a series of events uh, and a series of stories where Jesus is talking about power and money and he's talking about how his kingdom is going to switch things around. So twice we see tax collectors get saved and we see the rich young ruler Uh, who is a good righteous man, walk away. And we see the Pharisee, who is a a righteous man, walk away. So we see the tables turned on the normal narrative of money and power. Now, the first verse is just so chock full of stuff. While they were listening to this, so we've already established that bit. While they were listening to Jesus with Zacchaeus, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem. Okay, so this is a special parable because he's near Jerusalem. So I don't know if you don't know your Middle Eastern geography. uh, Jericho is just over the River Jordan on the kind of western side of the River Jordan. So the eastern side is modern day Jordan and the western side we're in Israel again now. Um, So, and Jericho is the oldest city in the world and there's still a bunch of it there like it's you can go to Jericho and you can see sycamore trees and have a moment and feel like you've been there with Zacchaeus here's the thing though it's also really low because Jericho is just slightly up the hill from the Dead Sea so the Dead Sea is the lowest place on earth except like in the ocean so it's the lowest point of on the land in the entire earth so the Dead Sea is 430 meters below sea level And then Jericho is slightly up the hill at 258 meters below sea level. And then Jerusalem is like 20, 24 kilometers or so up the hill. So from Jericho to Jerusalem, it's all uphill. Actually, that's not true. It goes up and then it goes down a little bit. And then it goes up and then it goes down and then it goes up. So the Mount of Olives is kind of the very top of the hill. So you go all the way from Jericho and it's like a nine hour walk in the sun. Because the water, um, the rains come from the Mediterranean and they kind of go all up the land, all the way up to Jerusalem. 
But at the top of the Mount of Olives, that's where the rain stops. So the, the, the distance between the Mount of Olives, which is right next to Jerusalem, and Jericho, which is right down in this valley at the, one of the lowest points on earth, that's what they call a, a, it's a, a rain shadow. It doesn't rain there. It's a desert and it's awful and it's hot. So it's like a 20, 24 kilometer-ish walk up a hill from Jericho to get to Jerusalem. And often they would kind of not bother with the last little ascent up the Mount of Olives. They'd chuck a left, um, go a bit further south and end up in Bethany or Bethage, which is where Lazarus and Mary and Martha lived. All right, so that's a whole bunch of background you really probably didn't need. Except when they left Jericho and headed west to get to Jerusalem, they would have passed by the ruins of a Herodian palace, Herodian being Herod. There was like nine generations of Herods, a lot of them. There was three different Herods that caused Jesus' grief. There's a lot of Herods, but there was these ruins there. So when it says he told this parable because he was near Jerusalem, it's possible and likely that it's because they were literally walking past this Herodian ruin and the parable that he tells very closely reflects the history of one of those Herods, which I'll, again, nice little context history lesson for you. Um, there was a guy named Archelaus who was one of the sons, the oldest Oldest or one of them, I'm not sure, older than Aunt Herod Antipas um, and Herod Antipas. I don't know, there's so many Herods. Um, so there was this guy, um, Achaelus, and so he's the oldest of Herod the Great's sons. So we talked about Herod the Great before. I kind of, I like the Herod history thing. I think it's interesting. Herod the Great was a great builder and a terrible human being. He was a despot and he was paranoid and he killed a whole bunch of his kids and wives. Like he was an awful, awful person. And when he was on his, so Herod the Great's the guy that killed the babies in Bethlehem as well. So if you're trying to get some context, when Jesus was born, the Magi went to Herod the Great. That was who was in charge then. Whereas when, G, uh, when there was a different Herod who killed a bunch of the early church leaders. Anyway, Josephus wrote about Herod and he said when Herod was on his deathbed, um, and, and I know this because I was reading them in Josephus Antiquities last night at like 1am to make sure I had my story right. Um, basically, Herod the Great, when he's on his deathbed, he placed an eagle over the front entrance of the temple. And the Jews believe that any kind of image or like it's a, like to create an image of God or something like that, that's a, a blasphemy, right? So Herod's saying, no, no, I've consecrated this as a, as a blessing. And, and all of the Pharisees and all of the Sadducees, everyone is like, nah, mate, this is total blasphemy. So two of them, Two of those teachers rallied a bunch of people and they went and tore it down and Herod got really cheesed off and he killed those two blokes and he killed 40 of their disciples. So this caused a huge, huge ruckus. Um, in fact, they, they gathered those guys and they sacrificed them. This is an interesting uh, thing here. Uh, he, he immolated them. Um, he set them all on fire. It wasn't nice. And, but that night, it records in um, Josephus' writings that there was... An eclipse. So we can actually mark the death of Herod and the birth of Christ in the uh, sorry and the um and the death of Christ. We can mark all these events. No, now I'm telling stories, not the death of Christ, the birth of Christ. So this is earlier. We can mark the death of Herod the Great and then the birth of Christ several years later because of this eclipse. 
because we can go back through the astronomy and we can figure out exactly when it was. It was March 13th, 4 BC. So that's how we know that Jesus was born around that time because he was born when Herod the Great was still alive. And he died shortly after this. Anyway, in the wake of his death, his son Archelaus was left to rule over Judea and Samaria. And this is where it starts to reflect the parable. And the Jews revolted against Archelaus, demanding retribution for all of the deaths and, um, that had happened and for the replacement of the high priest whom Herod had installed. Uh, and he relented, made, made a new high priest, and he thought, all done and dusted, all good. But they were still very, very cranky with him. Uh, so he sent some soldiers in. It's pretty awful. Uh, and he killed 3,000 of them and left their corpses in the temple over the Passover festival. If you really, really want to cheese off the Jews, desecrate their temple with the corpses of their people. That's, that's a great political move if you're looking for support. So he is a guy that was hated. Now this is, remember, Jesus is just walking past the ruins of the temple, uh, of the palace that Archelaus repaired and lived in. So it's an object lesson. He's saying, hey, I'll tell you a lesson. Remember that guy who lived over there? And then he tells a parable. He says, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return, which is exactly what Achilles did. In the midst of all of this devastation in Jerusalem, he packed up camp, went to Rome to try and get Augustus to make him king because Herod was now dead and they were a vassal state. He wanted to be king. He had to go to Rome and get that approval. And his subjects hated him, just like in the parable. Uh, so he went there and eventually he was not actually made king. He was made an ethnarch, which is like a local ruler. Um, but he was, yeah, he was the worst. He was a terrible leader as well. Um, later on, there were more riots. The Roman governor from Syria had to come in and 2,000 more Jews were crucified. And eventually he got um, exiled and kicked out. Weird story, I get it. But the story in this parable is of a king who goes away to, sorry, of a, a, a nobleman who goes away to get made king and his people hate him. And when he comes back, he then executes violence on them. So the story of Archelaus, there is no, when I said at the beginning that I'm going to interpret this differently, everyone agrees that this is actually a sermon that is using the story of Archelaus as a model. Like that's just part of the deal here. All right, I'm almost done with that background information now. So remember that first verse, while they were listening to Jesus with Zacchaeus, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem, perhaps near these ruins. And he's thinking about, um, about this Herodian ruler. And the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. They thought the kingdom was going to appear at once because Jesus had just spent the last 10 chapters, the whole lead up of his way into Jerusalem, saying that he was going to go there and get killed. They weren't listening to the get killed bit though. They were listening to the, this is the triumphal entry. So shortly after this, Jesus enters into Jerusalem and they on the donkey and they lay down the palm leaves. And this is the big event. They all think something miraculous and incredible is going to happen. The Messiah has returned and God is going to empower him to annihilate the Romans especially that wicked king, you know, like annihilate the Romans and establish Jewish rule. So they're really excited. 
the vast majority of commentators, just including myself until about 11 o'clock last night, believe that this story reflects an eschatological allegory. Uh, Luke Johnson uh, is a, a guy who wrote a commentary. He summarizes the view like this. The nobleman is Jesus who goes away to become king. So he's telling a story, but it's an allegory for, himself, for Jesus talking about himself. He goes away to become king. He is opposed by the Jews and he entrusts the church to his disciples. And when he returns, he bestows authority on those who were trustworthy and he punishes those who opposed his rule. You see, the thing is, though, by allegorizing the story, he can kind, you can kind of um, take away all of the unbelievably traumatic and despotic elements of the story. Because you can just say, well, it's an allegory, it doesn't matter. But in order to do that, you also need to identify Jesus with the character of this story, but also with um, the character of, uh, what's his name? Um, Archelaus in history. And I just don't see Jesus anything like either of those characters. So the question is, how can we fix that? And I would suggest that it's our modern capitalistic reading of this that, that is influencing how we perceive it. See, in our culture, making a profit, that's the most important thing that you can do. But in the first century... That way it was considered very differently. In the first century, they had like a finite worldview on produce. So they thought there was exactly the right amount of stuff to go around. So if somebody got more, somebody else got less. If there were eight slices of pizza and eight people and someone ate two, someone was going hungry. The idea of profit making in the first century was largely considered to be immoral. You can look at Aristotle and, um, and a whole bunch of other people from that era, writing about that era, making a profit was seen as an immoral act because it meant that you had to rob from the poor. Now, that didn't bother a whole bunch of people though, right? Just like today, we have billionaires and we glorify them. We have billionaires that we like. We don't like Jeff Bezos. We think he's evil, but we like Elon Musk because he's kind of like a Bond villain in a fun way. Um, so, but we glorify wealth without realizing that in order to one person to have, you know, all of the wealth, it means that there are a whole bunch of people who work and slave and live in poverty. But because of our, our worship of capitalism, our worship of mammon, the God of money, you know, we, we don't see a problem with that. And the same was true in the first century. For the rich, for the money lenders... For the tax collectors, they saw amassing wealth as a great thing. Poor peasants would be taxed by someone like Zacchaeus. And what would happen is Zacchaeus, he was a chief tax collector. He would buy the taxing contract. So he'd go to Rome or, he, and, or whoever the official of the area was, and he'd say, I will give you this amount of money to be responsible for taxes here. And they'd go, great, we like the money up front. We like to, to not worry about it. He pays them the taxes and then he goes around that whole area like a, a standover man, like a mafia boss, and he squeezes all and extorts money out of them. And any extra money he can make beyond what he has to pay back to Rome, he gets to keep for himself. You see how that works? Now, the way that works then is a poor peasant who is working a small piece of land that they own wouldn't have enough money to buy seeds. So they would 
because they paid their tax. So they would go to a money lender and the money lender would lend them money at grossly extortionate prices. We're talking interest between like 60 and 200%. So then if you had a drought, this poor peasant would pay their tax and then they would owe money to the money lender and they couldn't afford to pay it back. And here's the loophole that really made the wealthy wealthy. When they couldn't afford to pay back the money lender, they would repossess the farm. And now the rich guy owns the farm and he owns the worker and his children because they can't afford to pay it back. So you have this gross inequality that happens in, in terms of wealth distribution. And the peasants, this is why you have peasant results, uh, revolts. There were lots of peasant revolts in history because they eventually got fed up. See, in the Jewish worldview, you were meant to have jubilee. You were meant to have a time where everyone got their land back. But even though the Jewish, um, the scriptures talk about jubilee, it never actually ever happened. There was always a loophole. There was always a reason why they never did it. For the servants in this parable to earn 10 times, so they started with one minute, to earn 10 times or five times what they started with, for them to earn 500% or 1,000% profit on what they had been given. They weren't doing this by just means. See, we often read this parable and we think the third servant is the bad guy because he was lazy. That's how the immoral despotic leader paints him. But let's look at this from the context of the 95% of people in Jesus' audience who were poor farming people. They're listening to this story about a violent overlord who they can remember only one generation earlier, who was a despot who, who ruined their lives, who killed their people. This is a story modeled on that guy. They listen to this story and the first servant got a thousand percent return on his money. Well, obviously he got it by repossessing people's lands and by making them slaves. And the same is true of the guy who made a 500% profit. These are not the good guys in the story. These guys are evil. These guys are the, 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 the billionaires who are taking advantage of the lower class. These are the guys who won't give people sick leave or maternity leave. These are the guys who won't give them health cover. These are the guys, these guys in this parable are not heroes. They are the villain. And the third one comes to, the, to the, 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 the returned master. And he says, I was afraid of you because you were a hard man. This is the verse that got me stuck. And I was like, I have to find another way. This just cannot be like Christ. It says, you take out what you did not put in and you reap what you did not sow. And the capitalist in me says, amen. And the old, you know, the allegorical interpretation of this says, yes, we should go and reap what we haven't sown and take out what we haven't put in. But think about this like a first century peasant. You, I'm afraid of you because you take stuff that isn't yours and you reap a harvest from work you didn't do. This sounds a lot like a modern day billionaire. Just grafting and stealing off all of the, the labor of the poor. Despite his fear, the third servant calls out the master. You take what you don't deserve and you reap a harvest from other people's labor. A guy named William Herzog, who is one of the theologians who uh, sees this as a, a commentary about social and economic issues instead of as an end times allegory. He says this, the third servant was a whistleblower. 
another theologian, Meryl Kitchen, writes this. In the wider narrative, Jesus is identified as the awaited Mezzanaic saviour with a self-proclaimed mission to bring good news to all who are poor, prisoners, handicapped or oppressed. If he is a consistent character, his speech will affirm his imputed ethics. It is Jesus who tells the parable of the pounds. So the reader must assume that the ethic, uh, the ethic depicted in the parable is intentional and careful, directly reflecting the ethical intention of the Lucan Jesus. But scholars give two divergent interpretations. So the reader's challenge is to decide which of the two dominant voices in the parable reflects the mind of Jesus, the nobleman king or the third slave. And uh, this, this theologian, uh, Merrill, she concludes that the relationship between the master and the servant reflect the relationship between the devil and Jesus. The devil claims a kingdom and demands obedience and wants you to rob and steal from the poor. The devil is just like this master. And the servant is offered power in response to complicity. The servant, if he had done it, would have been given 10 cities or given five cities or given in the same way that the, the devil tempts Jesus and says, I'll give you all the cities of the world if you just are complicit with my exploitation, if you are complicit with my worldview. But the servant refuses him and opposes him. And for this act, the servant loses his money and for Jesus, he loses his life. Clement and Irenaeus and Origen uh, and even Eusebius in a slightly different version, they all provide um, theological interpretations here that make the third servant to be the good guy, not the bad guy. See, the tra if the traditional uh, uh, interpretation of this parable, that it's just about end times and it's about how we need to be good and faithful and we need to just steward the gifts that we've been given and invest them, that's, you, that's fine. There's, that's not a bad message. I think that is largely what the message in Matthew in the similar parable reflects. Uh, in that case, this is a lesson for Jesus' followers to, uh, to explain how they need to wait diligently for his return. But if the alternative interpretation where the third servant is the hero and the king is the villain and his disciples are, his, uh, are complicit with his, his exploitation and his crimes, if that looks to you to be more like the story Jesus would tell in the context of, sto of, of story and parable and story and parable, one after the other in Luke about economic disparity and about the rich you know, giving up their wealth. And like again and again, the context would suggest that this parable needs to be interpreted differently if that's how you read this then it is a warning to Jesus disciples and to us about seizing power and wealth in the way that earthly kings and earthly kingdoms do about pursuing what what we are told by our culture is good but we know is wrong it's a lesson about not exploiting people for economic gain. And it's a lesson about not sanctifying capitalism and materialism. And at least one of the commentaries that I read, this scripture was explicitly used to justify capitalism as a kingdom of governance for, um, in the kingdom of God. However we choose to interpret this, um, we have to be able to reconcile its context. Uh, so I, you know, I like this other interpretation. 
And it is challenging to me because, especially when you've read something a lot of times, but, but last night was the first time I read through it and went, there's something about this that is just too, not quite right. And, and I would encourage you when you are reading, especially sections of scripture that you've read again and again and again, just be open to seeing it a different way. Because uh, I do, I think that this is a story about a despot who takes advantage of people and rips them off for his own profit and gain and steals their land and makes them slaves and then encourages his minions to do the same. And I think the world tells us that that's good. And we need to be like that third servant uh, who has the courage to not buy into that system. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you uh, have so much wisdom for us about how to live and how to wait patiently for your return, how to live honorably. I pray that we would not take advantage of the poor. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would understand that in this story we are almost certainly not the peasants, that we are almost certainly the workers. We're the three servants. We're not a billionaire, but we are complicit in the structures that, that hold people down. And I pray that we would be like that third servant, that we would be willing to set aside the gain that can be had uh, in this world in order to reflect the values of the kingdom of God. May we be generous with the poor. May we be like Zacchaeus, who turned from his exploitation, who turned from cheating people to um, giving back and becoming a true disciple of yours. I pray that we would be like the, um, the tax collector that knew that he was guilty instead of the Pharisee who thought that he was righteous. I pray that we would uh, not be like the rich young ruler trying to live righteous but not being willing to give it all for your kingdom. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.